0: I think some of the challenges we're having today is because we haven't done that work of catechetical instruction and passing on the the critical doctrines of the faith. We've assumed that the people in the pew believe these things and know these things. So I think Machen is very, very important in this regard, is that he saw that if the doctrinal underpinnings of the church are not reaffirmed and passed on, then Christianity morphs into something very, very different.
1: Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today, Steve Wellam and I will be interviewing Michael Haken as we discuss the life, ministry, and impact of Jay Gresham Machen. If you haven't listened to Dr. Haken's long form on Machen, you can do that by clicking on the last podcast. Every month, we record a reading of our long forms so that you can listen to them on the go, and then we discuss the content of the piece with the author of the long form. Earlier this month, Brad Green and I interviewed Machen biographer and church historian Daryl G. Hart, and in that interview, in his long form, we considered the book Christianity and Liberalism, and now today, we widen our lens to learn more about the man, J. Gresham Machen. For those who do not know Michael Haken, he has been a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky since 2008, all the while continuing to live in Canada. In Canada, he also teaches at the Toronto Baptist Seminary. Meanwhile, at Southern Seminary, Michael leads the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, and right now he is working on a project to bring all of Andrew Fuller's works into a 17-volume set, so be sure to keep an eye out for that work. For today, however, our conversation turns not to the Baptist, but to a Northern Presbyterian by the name of John Gresham Machen, whose stand for truth through the early 20th century continues to provide a model for all Christians today. All month long, Christ Overall is dedicating this time to study this man and to understand how his book, Christianity and Liberalism, stood against the errors that were creeping into the church in the 1920s. And then from his book, we are learning as well how to stand for the faith in our day today. And so this interview, we're going to talk about the life of John Gresham Machen, defender of the faith. Dr. Haken, welcome to the Christ Overall Podcast. Good to be with you. And Steve, welcome back. You've been out of the country. Actually, Dr. Haken is joining us from Canada today, but you were out of the country as well. Where did you just get back from?
2: Uh, I was a week in Ireland uh, teaching in uh, Bible College there and had a wonderful time. Wonderful. Glad
1: to have you back, brother.
2: Well, as we get uh,
1: a chance to talk about uh, Jay Gresham Machen today, we're going to be reflecting on Dr. Haken's piece, John Gresham Machen, Defender of the Faith. And maybe just to begin, Michael, if you'd be willing to tell us just your own introduction to Machen and how this article, this chapter, came to be written.
0: Yeah, this was written for a conference probably about 20 years ago. For a period of time, Ligonier had a kind of a Ligonier Canada uh, in which they did regular annual conferences. And the issue of inerrancy and the reliability of the scriptures is a question that's been coming up again and again over the last probably 40, 50 years. And so for a variety of reasons, I chose to, at this particular conference, it was on the reliability of the scriptures, inerrancy, et cetera. I was asked to do a historical piece. And I'd had some acquaintance with Machen before, primarily through his biography by Ned Stonhouse. So I ended up uh, kind of gravitating to this particular piece. There were a number of elements in the story that are particularly helpful, relevant for our day. So that was the context. It was originally written as a as a conference paper for a conference that dealt with the reliability and inerrancy of the scriptures.
1: Wonderful. Well, I appreciate you letting us come and bring this to the audience of Christ overall. and certainly it was edifying just uh, listening and learning a few things along the way, including uh, matron's passion for the Sabbath and American football. Uh, I thought that those yeah. would be two things that were necessary to to bring to, to Germany where he was. That's great. <laughs> And Steve, for you, what background do you have just studying Machen, Systematic Theology, and the
2: rest? I came across Machen very early on in my uh, Christian life. I was raised in a Christian home and converted at 16, and then I started uh, reading uh, theology quite quite quickly and soon thereafter. And uh, my older brother, Kirk, introduced me to many of the Westminster theologians and, you know, read Corneus Van Til and John Murray, and then I came across Machen. Early on, and and uh, what struck me, and it was Christianity and liberalism that I first read, was just a reminder of the difference between historic Christianity and what at that time, what we identify now as classic liberalism, how it was a different religion. And that really... Uh, Hit me because I had been reading areas in apologetics and trying to witness to my friends in Canada. This type of thing and saying, "What is historic Christianity? What what are these alternatives? How are there distortions then of the historic Christian position that people identify as Christianity, but it's really not Christianity?" And Machen was very, very helpful. And he was uh, wrote in such a straightforward, simple manner, made things very clear as to what, you know, the Bible is saying, what historic Christians have said through the ages, and then what, you know, shows up as as alternatives. And I found it very, very helpful and then got into his other books, What is Faith? And and then read The Origin of Paul's Religion and 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 other works of his that was really encouraging to me early on in my Christian life. Wonderful.
1: We'll get a chance to talk about a number of those things as we walk through this uh, article together and I thought it was interesting, Michael, when you started, you quoted here from Machen and even something that he wrote for the Moody Bible Institute in in 1923, these three great crises, uh, in the history of the church. One from the second century when Christianity was facing Gnosticism and the other during the Middle Ages with legalism that would lead to the Protestant Reformation. And then he identifies this great battle with modernism and fundamentalism, maybe not using those terms yet at that time. But I'm just curious, you know, as you look at church history, 20 centuries or so, how does the modernist fundamentalist movement, uh, that that debate, uh, how does that fit into the life of the church over the 20 centuries? Is that one of the great three debates that are there? Or how would you place that just in church history overall?
0: Yeah, I probably wouldn't identify it as one of the three. First of all, you know, why three? Uh, <laughs> I think Arianism and the battle for the Doctrine of the Trinity in the, the long, you know, fourth century is very, very important and significant. The whole Pelagian debate with Augustine. So it's curious, and I didn't kind of uh, research this in terms of his background. Why, why did Machen identify these three? Obviously, the fight against Gnosticism and the fight against the corruption of Christianity in the late medieval period are vital battles that are fundamental to the preservation of the gospel. But I'm not sure I would have identified, you know, three. I probably would have added a couple more. But there's no doubt that the what we call the fundamentalist-modernist controversy. um, Although Machen was very reticent to describe himself as a fundamentalist for a variety of reasons, while he had common cause with other fundamentalists like J. Frank Norris, W. B. Riley, etc., prominent Baptist fundamentalists in the states, or T. T. Shields here in Canada, there were there were significant differences particularly the way in which fundamentalists tended to make various lifestyle issues or adiaphora primary elements of the fight for the gospel. But I think there's no doubt that the identification of the what we call the fundamentalist modernist controversy is a, a critical watershed in the history of Christianity in the West. Here in Ontario, for example, I've done a lot of driving around southern Ontario, small towns, you know, going to preach here and there or speak here and there. And invariably you go through a small town of, you know, two, three, 4,000 people. And there is a massive church building, which in Ontario belongs to the United Church, which was a union of Presbyterians and Methodists in the 1920s. And you can tell by the size of the building, the sanctuary would seat easily 800 to a thousand. And at one point it was full. When that union took place in 1925, It basically involved 66% of evangelicals in Ontario. Um, Roughly one out of every three evangelicals at the beginning of the 20th century was a Presbyterian. One out of every three was a Methodist. And the apostasy, and it really is apostasy, of that denomination because of the, the imbibing of modernist ideology and theology has been devastating for the gospel in not simply Ontario, but other parts of Canada. And the collapse of significant sectors of Western Christianity, as a result of the embrace of the sort of liberalism that Machen is fighting, you know, it's it's it has been it's it's a major watershed in various parts of of the United States and Canada and the West in general. So in my mind, there's there's no doubt that his identification of this battle. On the level of the battle for the gospel of the Reformation or the battle for the gospel at the time of the uh, struggle against Gnosticism in the second and third centuries, he is not underestimating the historical importance of the struggle in which he was engaged.
1: Yeah, so even if it's a little idiosyncratic that he picks those three, certainly <laughs> it's that kind of, of massive ordeal. And, you know, as the American on the on the call today, right, I think it's helpful to remember that there is a great legacy of the evangelical church in Canada, that in many ways has been lost, certainly seeing just the cultural movement in Canada. We think about Justin Trudeau and everything else that has gone on in Canada there today, uh, but to see those large churches that were there and, and even the gift that uh, both of you brothers and, and many other of the professors that I had at Southern Seminary and other places have come from Canada. It's good to be reminded of that historical movement and some of the things that have been lost uh, as a result of the movement away from Orthodox historic Christianity uh, towards something else and then ultimately even moving away from any kind of Christianity Christianity, association with church at all,
0: yeah. Just very quickly, I mean, you know, in the late 1800s, say the 1880s to the 1890s, probably somewhere close to 80 percent of people living in Ontario heard the gospel every week. Hmm. That's what we've lost. Yeah, and a significant part of it is the rejection of biblical Christianity um, in this body that we call the United Church.
2: And, and don't you don't you think, Michael? As well. Um... I mean, obviously Machen saw the fundamentalist modernist controversies. I mean, he puts it as the third, third great battle, and we can then talk about other great battles, but in some sense, I mean, it really is significant because what you have is that you have the attempt of the, of the modernists to say, we are Christian, right? We are Christian, but then a redefinition of every single term and doctrine and then saying, well, we are the true church. We are, the ones that go back to the entire uh, beginning and tied to more religious experience than doctrinal commitments. And uh, I mean, this really, I mean, some some sense of parallels Gnosticism of old. If Gnosticism actually won in the early church, you would have had an entirely different Christianity, an entirely different redefinition of it. Whereas when you go through church history, say the Roman Catholic Protestant divide, you still had a lot of agreement as to, well, there's a bodily resurrection. There's there's an actual God, a triune God that's there. There's differences on authority issues in terms of the church, tradition, and so on. But you didn't have this redefinition of, of Christianity so that, When the gospel, so-called gospels, preach, they're saying, well, we are Christian, yet we don't even hear the Bible. Or what Machen's wrestling with, you'll have people that will deny the bodily resurrection and still say it doesn't matter. You can still have your experience of Jesus and uh, be Christian. And that seems to me to be something new or maybe parallel to the Gnostic position of old where this redefinition, this syncretism that's taking place, uh, would destroy Christianity, root and branch, if it wasn't dealt with, and people were called back to the historic position. So, I mean, it's a it's a significant uh, challenge that the church had to face since the Enlightenment, then into the modern world.
0: Yeah, I would agree. As I said, the the choice of three, we could debate that uh, till the cows come home, so to speak, <laughs> as to how many critical phases there have been. But yeah, the the parallel that you bring there between the modernist kind of perspective on Christianity, the redefinition of what is Christianity and the Gnostic is very, very well well put. Uh, I think of Irenaeus in his um Against Heresies, he says that the men he is fighting, it's it's as if they've inherited a mosaic and he's thinking of the little mosaic tiles, yeah, which depicted a face. And they've rearranged the puzzle to depict a dog. Hmm. And it's hmm. uh they've got the same, they've got all the same parts, but it no longer is a face, it's a dog. Yeah. A human face. And I think that's very apropos of both Gnosis and and, uh, and uh, liberalism as it kind of develops in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. It uses terminology, but it's no longer the same thing at all.
1: Yeah, this is why it's so applicable to today, right? Where there are those who are taking words and then completely redefining what those terms mean. So we can see that with Machin, see that with Irenaeus before. I'm curious, and, and Steve, maybe just to start with you, Is what Machen is doing, is it novel in and around that time? So he's making, I think maybe, you know, one of the things that has stood the test of time with his book is to say that he has identified that we are not just dealing with two kinds of Christianities, rather, but there is something Christian and then there's something liberal. He's making that division, the two different religions that are going on here. Is that novel at that time? Certainly not novel across the, the age, but is he the first one to make that argument at that time?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And maybe Michael will be able to answer that too. I mean, I, I'm just looking at those who are writing at that period of time. You think of in in the Netherlands, then when you have the entire Dutch tradition, which of course then came over to Princeton through Gerhardus Voss and would have influenced that. And, and Machen would have been there as well to hear that teaching. I mean, they were making that clear distinction, Bavink and Kuyper and Voss and others. Between historic Christian belief and what was then identified as modernism, liberalism, and so on. I don't know if Machen's the first one that's doing so in North America. I don't think he is. I mean, you do have Charles Hodge, that clearly distinguished liberalism uh you know before machin from historic christianity but uh, Machen, uh certainly brought it to the forefront and really made it clear as to this major major contrast here's historic christianity and then there's this other religion and i think he made that very clear but i, I couldn't say whether he was the first one that that did that
0: Yeah, I think you've got Warfield uh, at Princeton also making similar sort of claims. But the difference, I think, between Warfield and Machen, Machen Machen is bringing it into the public square in a way that Warfield was not. Um, Warfield is, I think, a remarkable uh, theologian and uh, New Testament scholar, which is how he started. Uh, But a lot of his critique of the liberal position was through things like book reviews, where he would take to task uh, the latest German critical arguments in various books, or fairly dense uh, theological articles like the Our God and Father uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ, which was published in a review that uh, Princeton was publishing during the early 20th century. I use it in one of my uh, church history courses, and it's a very dense article, you know, replete with fairly significant arguments from the Greek, but it's certainly not something that could easily be picked up by an educated person in the pew, and easily worked through. So Machen is pioneering in one sense, building upon the work of people like Warfield, but bringing it to the common person, enabling them to understand the argument and the solution.
1: Excellent. Well, let's actually look a little bit more at Machen's background and certainly the way that he was influenced by Warfield and others. Michael, you go back to even Machen's early years and talk about his family. And uh, the way that his father from the South lived in Washington, D.C. and was sympathetic to, to the South. His mother was even a daughter of the Confederacy, so to speak. And so I, I read that and I thought, I bet you there would be some who would read that and almost want to dismiss Machen in our cancel culture today uh, because of the fact that he was from the South and his family would have been you know, supportive of the Confederacy and all of that. And so maybe just to enlarge the, the question, enlarge the conversation, when you're dealing with Southern Presbyterians or Southern Baptists who have slavery in their midst and have even defended like, I'm thinking like an R.L. Dabney or others, how do you teach your students to to think critically about appropriating good arguments while at the same time recognizing the, the fallenness and uh, the short-sightedness of the sinfulness of some of those things at that time? How can you help us to think about that?
0: Yeah, that's a very important question, especially in light of the current context, but I suspect it's it's one that we has always been with us, but maybe not in terms of issues of race and maybe even gender today. The heirs of Calvin have always wrestled with Calvin's involvement in the execution of Michael Cervantes, What do you do with Oliver Cromwell and the some of his sieges in Ireland? You know, so you you, you always have elements of figures in the past that can be problematic for us today. First of all, I I think one of the the critical things is approaching the past not from a standpoint of moral superiority, but from one of humility, recognizing that these men were people of their own time, uh, shaped by that. We are the same. Uh, We just don't see it. Give us 50 to 100 years if the Lord tarries, we'll find that people can look back at us and say, how on earth could they ever ever believe that, etc., etc.? So I think to practice history, one needs a level of humility. That doesn't mean that we whitewash or even justify various stands that a figure made in the past. And uh, Machen did believe in uh, racial segregation. He had problems in terms of the admission of African-Americans to Princeton, where actually Warfield stood against him. Mm. And Warfield, who is also a child of the South, was actually opposed to opposed Machen on Machen's uh, perspective on this, but having you know having said that uh, that he maybe he's got certain areas that are problematic in that in that one area that doesn't mean we simply as you say cancel him throw him under the bus um, because he has so much in other areas to help us again Luther you know Luther and the Jews Luther's uh, invectives that got worse and worse as he got older. I think very helpful here would be somebody like John Calvin, who described Luther as an apostle, and yet was also very conscious that Luther sometimes hurt the Protestant cause by his invectives and the way he described people. So, the long and the short of it is we need to approach the past with a degree of humility, recognizing that men and women were children of their time, trying to understand why they would have had those perspectives, and Not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, recognizing that men and women from the past who may have erred in one area that we find egregious now, nonetheless, can help us enormously in other areas. And Machen falls into that in that regard.
1: Yeah, that seems incredibly sensible, uh, wise, even biblical, right? I think about Hebrews 13 that tells us that we are to remember those who have taught us the Word of God and to examine their faith. Those ways that they've been faithful, we are to imitate their faithfulness and those that we have not been faithful to uh, to not imitate that. Steve, do you think over the last 10, 15 years that students have struggled to maintain that kind of objectivity? And I put 10 or 15 years because that seems to be the time that things like the iPhone and just social media have seemed to really impact students. I'm just thinking, you know, in the course of your teaching, are we able to to think that clearly and objectively? Are there other things that are challenging us in the way that we're able to look at the past?
2: Yeah, I think because of the influences of the education system, the entire culture, it's difficult for students to, you know, clearly think historically, think about uh, the past in terms of warts and all good and bad. But I mean, I think most of the students I come in contact with, as you present to them, and especially as Christians, where we realize that people uh, are fallen, uh, people have made serious mistakes in the past, that, that most students are quite willing to, Give them benefit of the doubt to learn from those. Now, the broader culture is a whole different story because they don't have, you know, a Christian view to even think about these issues of human depravity and and uh, the problems that we inherit. And but I think we've done a good job, and most of our students have a, have a pretty good sense that yes, you can't cancel everything from the past; we have to learn from it. But I do think that's an issue in our larger society, and we have to teach then. As we pick, um, you know, bring in any historical figure that we have to approach them properly, that we have to do so in light of scripture, uh, that we as Christians are the ones who can do that because we have a proper view of humans, as well as a proper view of God's grace. And uh, that uh, makes it a little, you know, a little bit easier for us to, to handle some of these issues. But it is a challenge in our present day. That's helpful. And certainly
1: thinking about that and the way in which we have all been influenced by by teachers and influenced by by culture and the rest. Michael, to that point, you just mentioned in passing uh, that Machen went to to Princeton. Uh, he was influenced by the likes of uh, A A. Hodge and BB B. Warfield. and then from there went on to to Germany, where he learned under Johann Wilhelm Hermann. Uh, was deeply influenced by him. And I'd be curious to know, what, what do we know about his time at Princeton? And maybe what do we know about Herman and um, the impact that he had on Machen? Why was Machen so taken by this man?
0: Yeah, so his early, uh, his early studies were, uh, as you mentioned there at Princeton, that gave him contact with Warfield. He would be a very significant mentor in Machen's life. A. A. Hodge had died in 1886. So The impact of him would have been through those who had studied under him, maybe still at the school, teaching, etc. There was no initial thought of going into ministry when his pastor recommended that he go to Princeton. But in his final year of his studies there, he won a a fellowship in New Testament, which encouraged him to think in terms of maybe doing further studies, and many Americans— for a significant portion of the latter part of the 19th century and many Brits saw Germany as kind of the center of deep and significant theological study. Uh, Warfield himself had been to Germany and uh, studied there and so it's not surprising that Germany was suggested to Machen and he decided to spend the academic year of 1905-1906 studying with a number of uh, well-known New Testament scholars of whom one of them was Wilhelm Hermann. Hermann, born in the 1840s. He would die in 1922. Um, He's a very significant figure. Uh, Among his students were Karl Barth and Rudolf Bultmann, two very, very different figures theologically. Bultmann, the the classic example of liberal theology, applied to New Testament studies. Uh, Barth, attempting to recover a biblical understanding of God, the Trinity, and various aspects of Christianity, but bedeviled all through his career with a, I, in my view, and a wrong view of Holy Scripture as potentially errant, but very, very different theologically. Both of them sat under uh, Wilhelm Hermann, as did uh, Machen for that year or so. And Hermann was a scintillating speaker. To be honest, many of the early liberal speakers and teachers were very, very good in terms of communication. They were excellent communicators and often nice people. Uh, Wilhelm Hermann had a very high reputation in terms of his students. And as I said, a scintillating lecturer. Uh, during his lectures, the auditorium where he would often lecture would be full, in fact, to the point that people would actually sit on the steps leading up to the podium from which he spoke. And Machen... Uh, would write letters back, Um, he was not married, but he would write letters back to his mother and to Warfield about how Herman was having such an impact upon him, that while Herman did not believe in the resurrection of the body, nonetheless, he did believe in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was still a living figure. And in some of you, you read some of them, Machen's letters regarding Herman's lectures, and it sounds almost like Herman was, at the end of his lectures, would call people to put their faith in Jesus that he had just enunciated uh, during his lecture, almost like an altar call in some of these German lecture hall, this German lecture hall. So Herman had an enormous impact upon uh, his students, and particularly upon Machen. He confessed to his parents the only way he could view him was one of deepest reverence. Now that all of that is at the time of his of his studies there, and thankfully, Warfield began to realize that Machen's going to Germany was probably and spending time there was a mistake, mm-hmm. and it's may, uh, Warfield who encourages Machen to uh, to basically cut short his studies and to come back to America. And again, you could ask, what if that had not happened? Machen may well have been lost to the faith because he comes back to America and may, uh, Warfield knowing something of his scholarship and his scholarly abilities, wants to have him appointed to, uh, as a j- junior faculty member at, uh, at Princeton. And Machen basically tells him, I, I I can't sign the Westminster Confession, which was the confessional statement. And that's around 1907, 1908. And Warfield will then work with Machen, and he basically has Machen teach first-year Greek for a number of years. He reckons that he can't do much damage teaching first-year Greek. And by 1915, through sure the other faculty, but particularly Moorfield, uh, Machen is able to sign the Westminster Confession of Faith and be appointed a professor of New Testament interpretation. So, so this- Herman, Herman is a for many an obscure figure, but I think a very very important figure in terms of the the transmission of liberal theology through various channels in the 20th century.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean Herman. Her, my understanding is is crucial because, I mean, in some sense, uh, building off the entire enlightenment project that, for the most part, just dismantled the Bible. I mean, when you adopt an entirely different worldview, historical criticism, no longer is the Bible seen as God's word. You're bringing an alien worldview critique to the Bible and all of these areas. So what are we left with? Um, it's At the end of the Uh, You know, the 1900s, we're left with a Hermann approach or we're left with an Ernst-Trolz approach. Mm. And uh, Hermann uh, allows, carves out the uniqueness of Christianity still. He can still speak about the inner life of Jesus. He can still speak of having faith in Jesus. But, of course, it's now divorced from any kind of historical Jesus, the Jesus who actually lived, who died, who rose from the dead. So you can carve out this unique place for Christianity yet it's totally devoid of its historic content. It's devoid from history. Or you go the Ernst-Schultz direction, which then eventually opens the door for, there's nothing unique about Christianity. It's only absolute for a culture, but it's not absolute universally. And you open the door to pluralism, which is the direction much of the 20th century went. And so I think Hermann is very attractive as well. I can hold on to the historical criticism. I can hold on to, the higher critical methods. I can hold on to the enlightenment uh, theories of knowledge, yet I can still have this unique place for Jesus and Christian faith. And uh, that's why I think uh, when Machen is attracted to him and then rejects him, you see this uh, such strong emphasis on, no, we have to go back to history. There has to be a real Jesus who actually lived. The Bible's giving us not this... uh, geschichte jesus you know this this christ of faith uh this distinction between sort of the historical jesus and the christ of faith and this this jesus that we can have as as christians but it's now devoid from the biblical teaching that god is real he acted in history that jesus is the son of god who's actually come in history who died who rose from the dead and so uh Machen really sees the problems with hermon and, and says this is not christianity even though He's pious and calls people to faith, but he's calling people to faith in a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so uh, Hermann is really, really, you're right. I mean, he's an important figure, influenced Bart Bultmann, and then, of course, they went different directions. But a crucial, crucial figure at the end of the 1900s, early 20th century.
1: Yeah, and I think just the story is quite incredible. The way in which Machen, you know, really was struggling. Uh, with these things, and it just reminds us of how important the role of a professor, the role of Christian teachers are, for Warfield to know that, to be aware of that, and then to take action to bring him back. I mean, it's incredible to me that he would even you know, give him a place, even though he's teaching Greek and can't do too much damage there. You know, I can imagine if something was known like this today, uh, the number of of angry tweets that would be out there, that someone is hired on faculty with these kinds of views that are there. And yet in God's providence, that there wasn't that kind of attraction or that kind of knowledge at that point. And God did a great work through Warfield to Machen so that he could come about in 1915 to be able to speak on and to write on history and faith. And that certainly played a huge role in the the way that he's going to argue for the Christianity that was rooted in history. See if you just spoke to that. Michael, would you add more to just the way in which his experience led to his ministry, Uh, or even the way just in church history, those who have kind of dabbled in certain areas of false teaching and then had slingshotted back, or those who've even been in certain sins that have come back, how that impacted Machen or just the way that that impacted his ministry?
0: Yeah, I think there is something. Well, God uses, obviously, the fact that he had firsthand exposure. He, he, he knew the attractiveness uh, on one level of uh, Herman's teaching. If he had been guarded from that, he wouldn't have understood the system that he was fighting from the inside. And so God obviously uses all of this to create the, the apologist for the biblical faith that Maitren becomes in the 1920s and 1930s. You know, on my own, in my own experience. I did my master's and doctoral level studies at the University of Toronto at Wycliffe College, which was an evangelical school, but it was part of a larger uh, consortium of colleges called the Toronto School of Theology. And one of the schools at the Toronto School of Theology was Emmanuel College, which was a United Church college. And I took a couple of uh, courses over there. One in church history, which was not a problem, but one in a new, with a New Testament scholar named Heinz Günther. And Gunther, he advertised, it was a course in the uh, Greek study of the parables. And I really wanted to do more work in intermediate Greek. And so I took the course. There was a little bit of Greek that would be given at the beginning of the class. Gunther was a student of Rudolf Bulman, and it studied under Bulman. And I was exposed to all of the vagaries at a very young age. I was 20, 21, all of the vagaries and errors of source criticism. And uh, I remember the, one of the classes at the beginning of the course where he raised the question, he read a parable of Jesus and then said, so who said this? And eager beaver as I was, I put up my hand and said, well, Jesus said it. He then spent 15 minutes showing how, yeah, I could believe that, but that was very naive. It was probably spoken by, you know, one particular group fighting Judaizers in Rome in the late, you know, uh, first century, whatever. And uh, upon reflection, that course was enormously helpful. Uh, Not because I learned a ton of Greek, I didn't, nor because the source criticism I was exposed to in depth became part of my own way of reading the New Testament. But I saw from the inside, just the bizarre nature in some ways of radical criticism and the devastation it could cause. Hmm. And so on a very little scale, I could see why uh, Machen's exposure to liberal theology in one of its finest exponents, prepared him to be the apologist he could. Hmm. And uh, so, you, again, you can see in this God's hand and the wisdom of men like Warfield. Really, it's a, it's really an amazing thing. I, and I'm sure, as you said, you know, if, if, th- if this were today and it were known, uh, there'd be all kinds of angry tweets, but that was a different day.
1: Yeah. God is providential. We can give thanks for that. Now, when it says, or when we see that Machen's arguing for the historicity of Christianity. He's not opposed to experience. In fact, that's one of the things that you bring out. How is he relating the two here?
0: Well, obviously, I mean, there, there is a, a call to faith. There is a, an embrace of, of the gospel that has to be personal and experiential. He uh, use older language, experimental. He doesn't discount the work of the Holy Spirit. Even though one of the interesting, one of his critics is W.O. Carver, who was associated with Southern for many years and probably moving in a liberal direction. I don't know a lot of about Carver, but Carver was critical of Machen, thought that Machen basically left no room for the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And that's not, that's not true at all. I, I have a quote there about Machen uh, responding to to this and emphasizing the importance of experience in the sense of the work of the Spirit and so on. And so Machen Machen does not discount the necessity of the Holy Spirit opening the heart, as it were, to embrace the historical Jesus as he is related to us in the Gospels. But he rightly recognizes that the big battle of the 1920s and the 19-teens and the 1930s was for the, the historicity of the Gospels and the historical objectivity of the portrait of Christ that is given there. Earlier generations had fought for the importance of the work of the Spirit against a bare intellectualism, you know, for instance, the fight against animanianism in the in the in the 18th century with uh, people like uh, Andrew Fuller, but this was not that day. So there is very clear evidence that Machen did not discount the necessity of the experiential element of Christianity. But again, in some ways, you, you, you might be kind of helpfully summed up this way by Luther's statement that if the battle is raging in one quarter and you're concentrating your energy at, a, at another geographical point, you may well end up losing the war. You need to battle where the various attacks are being made against the Christian faith. And neither he nor, nor Herman disagreed on the importance of experience as a component. But what they radically disagreed on was, do the Gospels present us with a reliable historical account of who Jesus is?
1: Good word. Steve, what are the big battles today, right? If we learn anything from, from Machen, he's addressing those things with a full weight of Scripture, full weight of confidence in the Word of God that's revealed there, the work of the Holy Spirit. And 100 years later, we're still reading his book and learning from him. What are the battles today that we are, we're facing
2: well, we're we're facing many battles. I mean, I think what's what's common through the entire history of the church, and then what Machen faces specifically in in the fight of of his day, is it's always the battle of syncretism, isn't it? Taking something of the Scripture and then trying to mix it and match it and uh, and join it with that which is contrary to the Scripture and of course liberalism did this classic liberalism sought to still hold on to the bible i mean they didn't they they dismantled it but they still believed in jesus and would talk about god and even human problem and so on yet it was all redefined in terms of uh, an outside viewpoint that uh, that eventually reinterpreted the bible and cast it Uh, in contrary ways uh, to what scripture is teaching. And that battle is still with us today. It takes on different forms. So I think classic liberalism today has eventually morphed into uh, pluralism and uh, various views that still would try to maintain Christianity, but, you know, the historical truthfulness the um the, the historic doctrines have all been gone what liberalism tried to maintain in terms of christ's uniqueness and christianity's uniqueness has been given up today in terms of a pluralistic mentality jesus is one among many but then there was a pushback uh in the liberal world on this uh carl i think is a good example of this where they tried to recapture something of orthodoxy reject the liberalism that he was taught by Hermann and and uh, von Harnack and others. Yet, of course, the danger there is it's not a full orb return to historic Christianity. And Michael's already mentioned uh, Bart's weakness in the doctrine of scripture so that you sort of have a halfway house. Well, the Bible is authoritative to a certain point, greater than what the liberals were saying, yet it still makes mistakes. It uh, still theologically and historically is may be incorrect which is a very unsteady foundation so that's battles and we face battles then of redefinition we find those who still out of evangelical circles uh, post-conservatives post-evangelicals given a number of names are are still attempting to hang on to historic christianity that redefine terms in terms of contemporary issues So that we see this in the moral front, uh, the application to, say, LGBT, and now we're seeing debates over complementarianism, egalitarianism, where a constant redefinition of terms. So the, the battle that Machen faced in terms of historic Christianity, standing for what is true, grounded in Scripture, is constantly the battle. It just takes new shape new form in our present day. So what he teaches us is we have to stand firmly on the authority of scripture, the historic positions of the church, and then apply that to whatever's whatever we face in, in our day and whatever the challenges that come to us.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. And certainly thinking about one of the things you bring out, Michael, with regards to Machin, is that he's arguing for doctrine, right? When so many others are arguing for life or experience He's arguing for doctrine. Today, it seems as though there's an argument for doing missions or to be doing the work, being in ministry together and downplaying doctrine. Uh, coming back from the Southern Baptist Convention just a couple of weeks ago, one of the points of conversation that may be even there for the next year or so uh, has to do with even kind of coming up with some kind of abstract or some sort of agreed-upon statement that might be a part of the Baptist faith and message for churches to be cooperating together that would be less than the full doctrinal definition in the Baptist faith message, but something more core and essential to that. Michael, as you hear about that, what can we learn from Machen's time? What can we learn from church history with respect to when churches, when denominations move to kind of have a more unified union approach to things where they are shrinking the doctrinal specifics? What happens there and what should we do today to make sure that we're holding fast to the whole council of God?
0: Yes. I mean, doctrine is obviously vital to the life of the church. It's vital to piety. There's a a quote from Machen's older contemporary, C.H. Burgeon, to this effect, that the coals of orthodoxy are vital to to the fire of piety. That one of the reasons why in the 18th century, when revival comes to the Anglican church, is the Anglican church used the Book of Common Prayer regularly. Even if the men using it were unbelievers, as many of them were, Far too many of them were. Nonetheless, there is this bedrock of orthodoxy that is there. Once a church community abandons those classical Christian doctrines, what is there left to revive? And so, doctrine is is essential to to piety, essential to mission. If we if we don't have a good grasp of, of biblical doctrine, what on earth are we doing in terms of, of proclaiming the gospel? What are we winning people to, et cetera? And I think in the 20th century, uh, although evangelicalism stood fast, what becomes evangelicalism, because evangelicalism in some ways in North America is a child of the fundamentalist movement, they they, they hold fast to the biblical doctrines, but are betrayed into, I think, a serious problem of pragmatism. And while they give lip service to the importance of doctrine, the pragmatic approach to getting the job done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, doing church, uh, becomes pretty important during the 80s, 90s. And doctrine is downplayed. We have lost to a large degree the kind of catechetical perspective on the handing on of the Christian faith. It'd be very interesting to know how many churches do use any sort of catechism. Or have some any sort of catechetical structure to hand on the faith, the core of the faith. I mean, one of my great beefs is the fact that, the, for instance, the core doctrine of the Christian faith, the doctrine of the Trinity, for much of the middle part of the 20th century, and it even even during the the battles of during the fundamentalist-modernist controversy, gets sidelined. And so we, we come to the end of the 20th century where there is, and the last 20 or so years, where there is a recovery of interest in the Trinity, which interestingly enough, uh, Karl Barth does play a role in. And evangelicals are lost to know how to speak about the Trinity because we we haven't been talking about this central doctrine for the best part of probably 100 years or more. And because we've assumed everybody believes it and we've not laid out biblically, how we are to think about the relationships between the persons, etc. And the same could be true for a variety of other doctrines. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we preach on it once a year, probably, whereas it was a central, absolutely central, to the preaching of the gospel. The reason why the apostles called men and women to faith was not because they had Jesus in their hearts, but because they had seen the risen Christ. And so, uh, there is this Groundwork of doctrine that has to be passed on, and I, I think evangelicals, I think some of the challenges we're having today, is because we haven't done that work of catechetical instruction and passing on the the critical doctrines of the faith. We've assumed that the people in the pew believe these things and know these things. So I think Machen is very very important in this regard: is that he saw that if the doctrinal underpinnings of the church are not reaffirmed and passed on, then Christianity morphs into something very, very different. Uh, no matter what, whether you use Christian language, uh, the terminology, and no matter how much you speak about experience, Christianity is first and foremost a doctrinal faith, a faith that has rigor and intellectual contours, etc.
2: Well said. So- yeah, yeah, yeah. he clearly was the doctrinal. I also think with Machen as well, his ongoing significance is that he knew a time he lived in. He knew uh, what, what the battle of that day was, and he stood strong. So he, he called people back to doctrine. He called people back to historic Christianity. And we, he was also willing to actually stand up and say something, that he was willing to say, this is the battle of the day. This is the fight of the day. I must enter that fight and actually speak up and stand for historic Christianity, which I think a lot of our evangelical churches, we have a lot of battles that are going on today, and they're absent. They're silent. So we're not. You can't just remain sort of in your private little sphere. You're going to have to uh, pe- teach people to also speak up publicly. And Machen uh, gave his life to that, and uh, he was willing to to fight for that. Eventually, start a whole new seminary, uh, start a whole new denomination, and uh, it requires a separation of sometimes uh, those who won't go with you and still wanna play the games of the day of the previous era. And he says, no, we have to stand for what's right now. And we must do so uh, in faithfulness to the gospel.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And to bring kind of together what you both just said, there's a need to recover in the local church, the catechetical nature of the teaching, the passing down of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And there's a need to engage the culture, to engage the world around us. And I think it's possible to do one without the other and then becomes lopsided, right? Those who only want to fight the the, the fights of the culture and then can lose just the, the faith that is there or others who just want to kind of go back and say, we need to focus on the Trinity and only focus on the Trinity, but are actually not dealing with some of the other issues that are out in the culture. And both of those things are needed in the church as well. Well, brothers, I want to thank you both for the time that you've given to this subject, both in your, your writings and your readings and your studies before and uh, sharing those things on the podcast today.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Great to uh, speak about Machen, especially in our day. Absolutely.
1: And friends, thank you for listening to Christ Overall today. If this discussion about J. Gresham Machen has prompted further interest, take time to listen to or read Michael Haken's long form, John Gresham Machen, Defender of the Faith. This month on Christ Overall, you can also read a summary of every chapter of Christianity and liberalism. And those summaries then are followed by an appreciation and an application from Machen's insights into art world today. Indeed, all month long, we're focusing on his book, published 100 years ago, Christianity and Liberalism. And we do that because, as we discussed today, we believe that the book encapsulates the core of the doctrines of the faith, and it teaches us how to stand for that faith. As we can all admit, we need models of courage today, and J. Gresham is one such example worthy of our inquiry and imitation. Additionally, you may know of others who would benefit from learning about J. Gresham Machen. If so, take a moment to send them a link or share your favorite articles on Twitter. One of the best ways that you can help our ministry grow is to share it with others. You can also sign up for our newsletter at ChristOverall.com or you can talk to your church about supporting this ministry or simply drop us a line to tell us how this ministry might serve you better. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time then, let us remember that Christ is Lord over all and so in all things, let us exalt Christ.